You're listening to audio from Christ Community Church in Fishers, Indiana. Our mission is to develop disciples of Jesus to impact the world. If you'd like to find out more information about us or donate to our ministry, please visit us at our website at cccfishers.org. Thanks for joining us. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Acts chapter 12, starting at the first verse. It was about that this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. Chains fell off Peter's wrist. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing, or he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and the second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them itself and they went right through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You are out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door, they saw him. They were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Now they joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. 
On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to spread and flourish. Really uplifting end to that passage. (laughs) I think on the whole, though, this passage presents a portrait of faith and of Christianity that, that most people want to be true. We can see the events in, or we can see this in in the events surrounding Peter, right? Peter is imprisoned for following Jesus. Now, we're not told why he is arrested or even how he came to be arrested. It seems more that it's just the whims of Herod at work. And and just so we know, are, are clear, this is not the Herod of the time of Jesus. This is actually that Herod's grandson, okay? Herod, for whatever reason, has decided to arrest some of the disciples. He arrests James. He puts James to death, and this pleases the people, and so he does it some more by arresting Peter. However, while Peter is in prison, an angel of the Lord comes, breaks him out of jail in Mission Impossible style, and then Peter quietly makes his way to Mary's house, not Mary of Jesus, but Mary the mother of Mark, makes his way to Mary's house. There, there are a number of disciples who have been praying for Peter and Peter's release. And so we get this picture in Acts chapter 12 of of the result of faith, almost, right? Like, because of Peter's faith, it seems, and because of the prayers of his friends, God intervenes and miraculously saves Peter. And I think this is the faith that we want, We want a faith that gets us out of difficult situations. We want a faith where our prayers are miraculously answered, even when those answers to prayers are surprising to us. We want a faith that is marked by the triumphant and the victorious defeat over that which causes us pain. And on the surface, it looks as if this passage gives us that kind of faith. It, on the surface, appears as though God is remaking a dangerous and a difficult world into one where justice and fairness and security can be had for the faithful. And the manner in which that will, reality will come for the faithful is through the miracles, right? God will supernaturally swoop in and thwart the plan of evil and triumphantly bring about the resolution to our problems that we hope for. This is what we want. And I think we come to the conclusion that this passage gives us a portrait of that kind of faith when we focus in on the miracle and we see what we want to see in the passage. Because we want this kind of faith, we see this kind of faith. But when we focus in, well, let me say it like this, and I think we also focus in on the miracle because it helps us to ignore some of the questions that this passage actually raises. Because for me, when I read this passage, I actually come away with more questions than answers. I don't, at first blush, on the, like I keep saying, on the surface, it seems like this is all about that kind of faith that saves us. But, but, but really, there's a whole bunch of questions that we need to ask about this. Like if, we just, if we start with the miracle and we just look there, I think the most obvious question is what, why did God perform this miracle? What brought it about? 
Was it Peter's faith? Was it his obedience? And if it was Peter's faith that was a means by which he is able to escape, well, if it's Peter's faith that leads to the miracle by which he is able to escape Herod's nefarious plans, then what does that say about James, who was executed by Herod? Did he not have enough faith? Or was his faith not good enough? Or maybe was he not obedient enough? And then we've got the disciples who are praying. Maybe, maybe that's how the miracle comes about. It's the disciples who are praying for Peter's release. But if that's true, then why weren't they praying for James' release? And why does one disciple get the miracle and escape the wrath of the tyrant, but another does not? And, and then you have Peter's escape. Like, Peter escapes from Herod's grasp. Why doesn't that embolden him? And Peter doesn't escape jail and then go to the street corner and begin to mock Herod. Like, Herod thinks he can control God's people, but God is actually the one who is in control, and God will put Herod in his place. Like, Peter doesn't do that. He doesn't show up at the synagogue the next day and start preaching. Instead, Peter slips through the night to Mary's house and then quiets the disciples down, tells his story, and then just fades into the background. Just as he slips away into the night, Peter, from this point on in Acts, is going to slip into the background of the narrative. It's going to show up a couple of times, but for the most part, he disappears. Uh, How come this escape doesn't embolden him? Give him this sense of overwhelming courage that no matter what happens, no matter what difficulty he faces, God will save him. And then you have the issue of Herod and his wrath. I mean, what do we do with the fact that these guards are executed because Herod, or or because Peter escapes? I mean, the, the guards were innocent, right? They were just doing their job. And in fact, the reason that they're executed is because Peter escapes, and Peter's escape is because of God's intervention into the situation. So if God is the one who brought about the situation that the that then ended up killing the guards, why didn't God save them? And then on top of that, you have the question of persecution as a whole. It's obvious that God can do something about persecution. It's obvious that God can save his people from persecution. But why doesn't he always? And why does God save Peter in this instance, but he's not going to later in Peter's life? And and there are hundreds of Christians who die at the hand of the state. If God can free Peter, why doesn't God just end persecution altogether? It's my guess that most of us haven't read this passage with all of these questions in mind. And part of the reason that we don't ask these questions of the text is because that's not the faith we want. We don't want the faith of these questions. What we want is a simple faith. What we want is a faith where the world is made safe and where it's made fair where it's very straightforward. And the miracle of Peter's escape and the answer to prayer on the surface gives us the hope that that world is possible. And these questions, these questions don't make us feel secure. If anything, these questions feel dangerous. These are the kinds of questions that can unmoor us and cause us to begin to question God and faith on the whole. And yet... 
if we look beyond the miracle, these are the questions that begin to, to rise up. And if we're being honest about any miracle, these questions loom in the background. And I actually don't think that we're supposed to look at the miracle per se. Like, we're supposed to look at it, right? But, but if we're being honest about what Luke's intent was in writing the book of Acts, I don't think that Luke's intent was to write a book that would give us a methodological approach in receiving miraculous divine intervention in our life. Instead, I think, I think Luke's intent was much more subtle. I think Luke is simply writing and telling us these stories as a means of opening us up to the possibility of a new and unexpected reality by laying the actions of God on top of very ordinary and expected norms. Because we have the miracle of the story. But it rests on top of very ordinary, everyday, expected things. Here's what I mean. Where does this story start? The story starts with the state arresting and executing an innocent man. This isn't abnormal. This isn't unexpected. This happens far too often. Even in our day. In 1993, Liddell Lee was convicted of killing his neighbor, and then he was put to, be- put to death in 2017 in the state of Arkansas. Up until his execution, Liddell maintained his innocence in the crime. This month, this month, he was executed in 2017. This month, it was reported that fingerprints and DNA evidence from the murder weapon and from a bloody T-shirt did not match Lee's, but belonged to another male. It is very likely that the state killed an innocent man. States often wield their power to take what is not theirs. And in this case, life. Life. Life that is given by God and therefore is only God's to take. But the state does it. And it does it for the the pleasure of people. Because why did Herod kill James and then attempt to execute Peter? Because it made his constituents happy, which made him happy. He is seeking to secure political advantage by acting in ways that wins the approval of others. This is not unexpected. This is normal. How many rulers and leaders act not because of some deep conviction about what is right and what is wrong, but instead stick a wet finger up in the air to test which way the winds are blowing and then act accordingly? This is what we know. This is what we expect. And then, when powerful people find out that their plans have been thwarted, someone has to pay. Isn't this what we know? Isn't this what we expect? And so when Peter escapes, the soldiers that are tasked with guarding him were both interrogated and then executed. These men, these soldiers, may have had the appearance of strength and power, but it was all an illusion. They were prisoners as much as Peter was. They were captive to a system that relied on violence to keep keep the peace. And when they failed to serve the system by keeping the peace, the system turned on them. Violence came 
for them, which raises the possibility that maybe the soldiers weren't to be feared all along. Maybe they were to be pitied. Because what they didn't see, and maybe what we didn't even see, is that they themselves were captives. They weren't ever truly free. I mean, they may not have been behind bars, but they were in a prison chained to a system that forced them to be subject to the rules of violence. They lost. And that's not unexpected. Normal. It's normal for people to think that they're free when they're really not. It's normal for systems to turn on the people who long worked for the system. In his book, The Hidden Wound, Wendell Berry writes this. He says, our present idea of freedom is only the freedom to do as we please, to sell ourselves for a high salary, a home in the suburbs, and idle weekends. But that is a freedom dependent upon affluence, which is in turn dependent upon the rapid consumption of exhaustible supplies. The other kind of freedom is the freedom to take care of ourselves and of each other. The freedom of affluence opposes and contradicts the freedom of community life. So what he's saying here is this. He's saying our modern conception of freedom is captive to money. To having it, to getting it, to spending it. We think we're free, but we're not because our conception, our idea of freedom relies on having that money. And if we don't have that money, then we, then we can't do what we want to do. We're, we're, not, we're not really free. We're the guards. And then you've got Rhoda. You got the servant girl who answered the door and found Peter standing there. And at first glance, her story is, is comedic. I mean, the people are inside praying for Peter's release. And then outside, you got Peter knocking on the door. And Rhoda comes in and says to the people, hey, Peter is outside. And they're like, uh, yeah, we don't, we don't really believe you. You're kind of going out of your mind. Ha, ha, ha. Isn't the story funny? But the story really isn't comedic. It's much more tragic. Because how often are people with low social standing dismissed? How easy is it for us to ignore those who don't have a lot of social capital or influence? How often do we write people off because we quietly judge them as beneath us or ignorant or uninformed? I mean, Rhoda's story is not strange. It's expected. It's normal. Again and again throughout the story, we see things that we expect. We see powerful people act in ways that are absolutely in line with what we know and expect powerful people to do. And we see powerless people treated in ways that they typically are treated. So Acts 12, yes, it is a story of a wonderful miracle, but it is a story of the miraculous told against the backdrop of what we expect. And when you look at it like that... then I think you can begin to see what Luke is doing when he tells us this story. I think what Luke is doing here is he's opening us to the possibility of a new and unexpected reality. He's just opening us up to the possible that the God could 
that God could step in at any moment. And in fact, we could really say like Luke isn't just trying to do that. Like over and over again, this is what God is doing throughout the Bible. That God is trying to get us to expect the unexpected or to be open at least to the possibility of the unexpected. I mean, just think about how God has changed our expectations of, of who God is. We, we expect an angry God or a God who is far off and impersonal and highly temperamental. A God who needs to be appeased and made docile by our sacrifices. But in the face of that expectation, God takes on flesh and reveals himself to be full of grace and love. We expect that when we mess up, God will make us pay for it because that's what others do. That's what we've come, that's what we learned is normal. That we have to feel guilty about it and we have to pine over it. That we've got to pay back what we've got to owe. That we've got to atone for our sins. And that responsibility lies on us. But in the face of that expectation, God opens up the possibility of grace, that undeserved favor. Not because we atone for our sins, but because God did that on the cross for us in Jesus Christ. What we've come to expect is that death is final, that we will say our goodbyes to our loved ones, and in that saying goodbye, we will be separated for eternity by a, cha- by a chasm that we cannot cross. And in the face of that expectation, Jesus rises from the grave. Death is defeated. Eternity is no longer a black void, but it is now full of life and vibrance and abundance and joy. Faith. Faith is about being open to the possibility that our most fervent hopes will one day be realized. And in saying that, we have to recognize that faith and hope is a little bit scary because it opens us to the possibility of not just seeing those hopes realized, but of seeing them go unrealized. The hope is to open ourselves up to the possibility of risk. The hope Hope in the possibility of that which is normal being upended is also to expose ourselves to being vulnerable and disappointed. And many of us bear the scars from hoping for something for years and not having those hopes realized. Some of us have come to believe that our hopes that our hopes are foolish. Even when our hopes are good things and what seem to be the things that all of us should have, perhaps like hopes of being listened to, hopes of having meaning and purpose in life. I mean, those are good things. And for some of us, we hope for those things, but it feels foolish to hope for them. And what I mean by that is, is it feels like We should already know those things. We should know what our meaning is. We should know what our purpose is. We should be secure in those things. We should feel like we're being listened to. I mean, these things get talked about in such a fundamental way that it seems like everybody else has them. And and because we don't, I'm ashamed about it. I'm ashamed about it or I feel guilty that I haven't yet realized it or, or it makes me just 
disappointed because God yet hasn't revealed that to me in a way that I understand. And so because it feels like everybody around us already knows what their meaning is or what their purpose is or they get listened to, just keep quiet. Maybe some of us, maybe some of us just want to know that God is present and and active and able to influence our lives. And, and it doesn't have to be something astounding like an, uh, an angel leading us out of a prison. I mean, we take anything mundane. But even the act of acknowledging that we long for God to be present in our life forces us to confront the possibility of being let down. It forces us to confront the possibility that we won't get to be Peter, but instead we'll be James. Faith is hard, is it not? We talk a lot about hope, but sometimes hope is really hard. And I think one of the reasons that faith and hope is hard is because, like Acts 12, we find the miraculous and the divine intervention and involvement in our life mixed up with the normal. And far too often, we don't see the miracle. It just looks normal. Far too often, God's presence in our life doesn't show up with an angel leading us out of the difficult situation, out of the conflict, out of the pain. Instead, it shows up like a knock at the door. If this story is about the possibility of a new and unexpected reality coming against the backdrop of very ordinary and expected events, then perhaps the most important person in this story for you and I to pay attention to is the one who often goes overlooked. Rhoda. Rhoda heard an everyday, ordinary, mundane knock at the door and she went and opened it and in opening the door Rhoda was opening the possibility of being surprised I mean just think about that how many times are you sitting by at your house right Netflix is on you're like 8.30, and there's a knock at the door. What's the first question? Well, who could that be? We weren't expecting anyone. Right there, you're acknowledging that there's the possibility of being surprised. It's an ordinary, everyday knock. I don't know, maybe, maybe you're like me, but right now I'm just thinking Jesus standing at the door, knocking. Every day, ordinary. I believe that we, I believe that the God of the universe, the one who called all things into being, the one who formed the sun and the moon and the stars, the one who caused the mountains to rise and the valleys to fall, the one who brought the rain on the earth, the rivers and the oceans, 
The God who made cows and chickens and duck-billed platypuses delights in surprises. And if we can imagine a God who delights in surprises, a God who is willing to do something unexpected and, and laying down that surprise on top of something that is utterly mundane and normal, then we recognize that every moment of our life has the possibility of being a moment in which God surprises us. Where we get to see God at work doing something new. And maybe we don't see that in the moment. Maybe, maybe we're like Acts or, or the disciples in the book of Acts. Because if we, if we watch the disciples in the book of Acts, so often what they are doing is looking backwards and seeing God in action. Like these things are happening in their life and they just kind of going like, I don't, I, don't know, I don't know what that is. That, that was crazy. That was surreal. What was happening right there? What, why did that conversation take place? How did I end up next to a chariot? Like it's just all these things. And they look backwards and go like, oh, that was God. Oh, that thing happened, that, that was the Lord at work. Maybe, maybe we haven't been surprised by God in a while because, because we haven't created enough space to look back. Maybe recognizing God at work in the world and opening up something new on top of what is completely expected is is like a muscle that has to be worked out. You have to use it over and over again for it to become strong and for it to become second nature to use that muscle. And so maybe we've got to incorporate more reflection, more looking backwards, more asking questions of like, why did that conversation go the direction that it went? How come, how come when that person said that thing to me, my heart started to race? How did I end up in that place at that particular time and was able to do that thing. Maybe, maybe we just need to, to reflect a little bit more and create space and to, f to work that muscle out so that we can look back and be like, oh, how was Jesus at the door knocking? I was completely thrown off because it was so ordinary. It was so mundane. It was so just what you would expect, but but by being there and by being present, by having that conversation, by saying those words, by I opened the door and Jesus was there. Uh, our God delights in surprises. And nothing made that more clear when, <laughs> when God surprises us by taking on flesh surprised us by giving his life for us and then surprised us by walking out of the tomb and that God says I'm not done surprising you so as you go through your everyday normal expected life just be open just be open to the possibility that I'll surprise you today. Let's pray.
Father, we give you thanks that you are the God of surprises. And I pray that you would open our eyes, ears, minds to seeing you continue to surprise us with how you are working for the reconciliation of all things. How you are redeeming and restoring and knitting back together a world that's been fragmented by sin. May we see it often. Like the disciples throughout the book of Acts, may we be witnesses. Witnesses to your ongoing work in the world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.